Hello and welcome to the Psychomedia Podcast. I am Timothy Swan. And I am Ben Fell, and together we will be discussing the funny side of psychology. Yes, we're looking at a very novel field this week. Hey! Boom! <laughs> We've both got yep. soundboards! And it sounds like we're on talk radio again. Good job, <laughs> us. I, I like to imagine some American person, American, mm. uh, driving across the, the, the bare, barren states, um, possibly towards California. I didn't know there were any bears in the barren states. Oh, well, um, probably. <laughs> Is that the states Montana. that are all, they're the states that are ruled by a feudal hierarchy of ursine lords? Uh, or as some call it, the Deep South. <laughs> no, modern slavery and feudalism uh, anyway um no just bears you know, are very opposed to slavery <laughs> i think bears are opposed to any form of social hierarchy <laughs> so true. i might be wrong except those the research because i thought badgers would be very egalitarian and that turned out <laughs> not to be true the only hierarchies that they endorse are ones with upwardly mobile salmon with them <laughs> <laughs> yeah all those yuppie salmon <laughs> yummy tim it's pronounced yummy oh right okay well um anyway i i forget what i was going to say um yeah i imagine these people driving across america for hours and hours on end seeing no other vehicles but having us on instead of the satellite radio but we are a bit like those random right-wing conspiracy theorists um so there's a, a very famous right-wing conspiracy theorist called alex jones uh, who is okay. back in the news again this week for saying that the boston bombings were an inside job he's one of those oh, um one of them one of them and he, he's the only person in the world who makes you think piers morgan is reasonable because they're the ones who have been having all of these gun control debates uh, but john ronson yes. includes him as one of the extremists in them and um, oh. <laughs> the thing is, there's someone I follow on Twitter who loves to tweet about the stupid things he's done. But whenever I see it, I think of the Welsh presenter of The One Show. <laughs> and so I'm just like, what? She has an opinion on whether things were inside jobs? I thought she wasn't allowed opinions. It's The One Show. <laughs> I see. It's a very convoluted thing to explain, but that is a thing is. that goes on inside my head. <laughs> uh, hopefully we'll do better explaining more general principles. But first feedback ben no feedback no not feedback no i'm instigating a thing we are not allowed to do feedback until we have told people what the episode is about oh right yes i made a joke about it but didn't actually explain it because we suck at that <laughs> okay this week this week's Dread. episode is on books and novels and media and reading and stuff fiction stories that sort of thing. fiction mainly is that i guess would be the yeah the focal point yeah well i'm only doing prose fiction um, I don't know about you. You've got something that's slightly broader than that, maybe. Um, one of my studies generalizes to kind of um, consumer media in general. Are we fulfilling but... our brief of a, uh, a title? Psycho and media? Uh, well, uh, ne never more than this episode. Great. So uh, that's exciting. So, OK. OK, listeners. And Commence come back feedback. and we'll have a plenary session at the end. Although this <laughs> is really the plenary session right now, because this is the bit where we include you. Um, so I had a text from uh, erstwhile guest Mira, um, which is not really feedback. But the fact that she was thinking of both of us kind of means it is. She said, I had a very strange dream last night where you and your brothers, this is to me. Uh, who I don't actually know, but who lo looked a lot more like you in my dream. It's like, no, they genuinely look like me a lot. We're trying to make me guess which one was actually you. I think I got it right. 
Oh, and Ben was in the car park of my local Sainsbury's singing ballads in an exaggerated drunken way. Standard, really. <laughs> well, you, they say that dreams are often reflective of life. So yeah. I think Mira may be some kind of... Uh, what's the name of that Greek woman who had dreams about stuff? Uh, I don't know, unless you mean Cassandra. That's the one. But her prophecies were never believed. So you've got to refuse to believe that you'll ever sing a drunken ballad in a Sainsbury's car park. <laughs> and you can't impossible. do that, Ben. I cannot do that. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's not really feedback, but so I awesome. thought it was funny. And yes, I do look a lot like my brothers. We are occasionally mistaken for twins or just each other um, and the rest of it. And so my other feedback is, again, sort of cheating, but... It involves a joke that's too good to leave out. Uh, so, yeah, my friend uh, from school uh, kind of I don't understand how we became friends because we were in completely different years and stuff. But we've kind of seen each other randomly since. And she is a cool person called Yan or uh, Oshian uh, is another name that she has gone by. She goes by many names. And she said, uh, I hope there's somewhere one out there who gets this. The game of psycholinguistics. Fodor, 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 Fodor. <laughs> and... I jumped in and said I got it because I do. Um, mm. So is there anyone out there who can think of any Game of Thrones slash psychologist name jokes? At the moment, we've kind of failed to. Yeah, <laughs> it's... We did give it time. Mark Buckley the first, the first of his name. <laughs> um, yeah, that's about as far as we've got. We'll, we'll get back to you on that one. Exactly. It's, um, but yeah, I explained to her that I had thought a lot about jokes, including jokes about Fodor, because we did cover him in the mental imagery episode um, and had not thought of that joke. <laughs> I got one. I've got one. Go the for brains it. of Castamere, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Also, it just it's imagines a, some people kind of with, Castamere with their brains smashed out, which is pretty accurate. I was trying pretty to think likely, of one yeah. about like an economic, you know, econ economist or business psychologist who could go with like being a Lannister. Because then, like, you know, a Lannister in an ultimatum game always pays their debts. It doesn't really work. It's very bad at ultimatum games. Uh, well, yeah, you, the Reigns of Castamere or the Brains of Castamere is what happens if you fail an ultimatum yeah. game with the uh, Lannisters. Um, so, uh, well, yeah. Um, what have you done this week, Ben? Oh, you're just, just going to assume that I have no feedback. Well, That's no, I asked you and then you just shouted no. But then maybe you shout no for a different reason. It's very confusing. Do you have any feedback? No. No, exactly. I somehow knew in my heart. <laughs> By my heart, I mean my memory from somehow... five minutes ago before. <laughs> Your middle term memory. What have I done this week, Tim? Well, uh, I did a reasonably boring thing, but was exciting for me. I got a Waterstones loyalty card. Um, oh, I've got one of those. I haven't used it more than about twice. Well, because I, I managed to get three three stamps on my Mortstone stamp card in the process of getting the card because I bought far ah. too much, far too many graphic novels. Um, the next, the second and third sort of anthology of the uh, Journey into Mystery series with Luke, ah, I need to get looking really really good. Uh, but that was only middlingly interesting. Um, what we did this week, which I'm going to snuffle because I really didn't do anything else, is play yet more Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, you say yet more, but it's taken ages, like over six weeks to get oh, to yeah. the third session. Yeah, who would have and thought that the, the logistical 
the logistics of getting a single night in a week where four people doing completely different things with their lives can be around for two to three hours. Surprisingly difficult. Isn't there five people? Well, I, Did I'm our bas- monk give, do a really good stealth roll in your memory? <laughs> I'm basically free all the time, so... Ah, right, you don't count. No, I really don't. <laughs> and also, the you know, the selection of days which are made available to you is based on my schedule, so it's... Yes, no, I'm aware of that. I it's just why sometimes I'm like, why isn't there a weekend on this? Oh, yes, I remember. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was really awesome, except that I killed everyone. Yeah, well... In a way, you killed everyone, and in a way, we were responsible for our own deaths. But we were doing so well. We we got confidence from the act actions that happened. There wasn't so much as a, a difficulty spike as a difficulty mace it to the face, which many well, received. <laughs> more a difficulty steep-sided cliff from which a waterfall now falls. <laughs> so there were, the way, there, were there was pretty... a steep-sided cliff from which a waterfall fell. Someone climbed up it. Someone else jumped down it. It would have yeah. been epic. If it wasn't for the fact that we nearly all died. So, I mean, it has left us with a slightly slightly conundrumous situation um, wherein three of the party, I have decided, have been captured by evil goblins. Possibly slain. decided. Possibly not. Well, I mean, you, you're g- potentially going to have some fairly horrific things done to you, so we'll, we'll just oh. have to wait and see. One of the party... My character's so happy-go-lucky. Well, maybe this is the turning point. Maybe this is the dark second act. I could turn evil and then someone could redeem me somehow. I think the Iron Tooth might cut your hand off and turn out to be your father. I don't even want to know how that works. I'm in theory a half-elf. That's some weird (laughs) genetics going on there. You never specified what the other half was. I think I specified that it's human. (laughs) Um, Well, anyway, the, the rogue managed to escape by as mentioned leaping from the top of the waterfall and executing a perfect swan dive into the water whilst having spears thrown at him by onlooking it wasn't a perfect swan dive it was a perfect swan two ends dive because he (laughs) rolled like middling score (laughs) um so yeah he's escaped proud of that joke ben yeah i know you were Uh, that's why i I just i've I've just got the chat archive open and i'm looking at all the i haven't really but i could you could so anyway, he's escaped. He's going back to town to pr- potentially recruit new players and new characters uh, to help rescue the existing party members, some of whom may not survive. So that's oh. kind of exciting. Cliffhanger, both figuratively and literally. I know. I, I was really proud. I scored a critical hit on a boss character and it did very little to help the situation. <laughs> if anything, I should have just run when I had the chance. I had a chance, and I charged in, and I hit the goblin with a moon mace beautifully, and we still all died. <laughs> it makes me feel pretty disempowered, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that fight did quite a lot to make you feel disempowered. Yeah. Yeah, anyway. zero hit points will do that. I did some more role-playing the next day. Hmm. I think my family think I've gone a bit kind of role-playing nuts. Um, and uh, that was role playing as nuts. No, I was role playing as a uh, religious zealot with the power over fire. Um, she likes burning things. Um, which was interesting because I'd completely fleshed out like a completely made up uh, religion for this world and a completely made up magic system, and I got to play a sort of vaguely posh woman. I didn't use the voice changer. Um, Good. I thought about it, but. The trouble is that everyone else who does this podcast are like good voice actors, but I'm not because it's podcasted uh, as well as a role playing game. And I can't pretend to be a woman. 
in the voice sense. And um, uh, so I was just trying to put on a posh voice. So, you know, I want to be better. Maybe I should get a voice coach. I think Maybe there's a difference. The there's a difference between being good at voices and feeling the need to ch change your voice to like a woman's voice. Like, I, I mean, it is even the best voice artists struggle to. I mean, they very rarely do kind of cross gender voices. Sure, I, sure, obviously, because it's just too difficult. So I think yeah. you know you can affect. You can choose or not choose to like affect accents or, you know, modes of speech. But I think it's perfectly acceptable to use your normal voice on the understanding that your character is female. OK, well, That's, that uh, would be I my feel... attitude. And also I um, ab abhor the idea of the voice changer having experienced <laughs> its horrors. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, I still haven't done an episode like a demi podcast where I've got uh... the button switch between <laughs> two ostensibly different people using it have I yet mm. yet um right so that is the things that we have done um we should probably move into media because we've got to stick to a rigid structure you've kind of enhanced the rigid structure with a useful thing to keep us on track um admittedly you told me about it about a minute into the show instead of a minute before but still <laughs> well that's because i only thought of it a minute into the show because oh. you, we were failing as we usually do to properly signpost the topic oh well yes now now we'll know what we need to signpost at the beginning and if we have <laughs> a vague topic that will cause problems um <laughs> yes media of the week um so i picked up a um online video game from a, a friend of ours uh, called hannah this week um called autism which is a autism simulator. it's an autism simulator in that it attempts to convey what the sensory world of someone with autism is like to someone who is holistic which incidentally is the autistic word for people who aren't autistic um those sort of people tend to call themselves neurotypical but it is a bit you know judgy in some senses but uh, yeah things change shape people are kind of blank and terrifying the sound levels go up and down the first time i got close enough for the sound levels to really spike it really did freak me out and i was like ah yes i get it so it's <laughs> this brilliant representation of kind of sensory and social overload in a game form uh ah, just kind of really simply cool. implemented in unity um mm -hmm. which i hear has made things easier to make games and that but i don't know because i don't make <laughs> games and can't um but or it's really worth you? a little go to get, kind of get, you know, it's obviously not going to magically teach you what it's like to have autism, but it might give you a little bit of the sense of the fact that sensory things are really difficult. Um, I really like the idea of it in general, as a general principle, the idea of using, I mean, people, I guess people have used other forms of media to try and convey the sense, the, the kind of... It, experience of various psychological disorders in the past mm. although i can't think of any specifics well, i'm sure there there is art that has attempted to convey what it's like to have depression or i know that there are other and i know that there are other video games that yes, have done this there I was is gonna a, mention the video there's an game. rpg that uh attempts to convey what it's like to have depression yeah um well i'm going to talk later in the show about novels expressing what it's like to have certain illnesses and the kind of okay. psychological part of that um so yeah, clearly, I think it's particularly particularly good with video games because oh, yeah. of the interactive component. Like, 
uh, with any with any kind of rigidly defined piece of media that tries to convey something there is always that element of it's the the authorial voice and you can as we will find out later you can engage with it to a greater or lesser extent but when you're kind of forced into the interactive environment in a video game then you you kind of you only the only kind of inputs and the only data that you have to work with is what the game gives you and therefore it can exactly prescribe what it would be like what would be available to someone with a particular condition i think that's really cool yeah yeah um so yes that that is all i don't have too much to say about it apart from that you should uh, play it um okay cool. and, i shall uh, yes well my media of the week on the subject of uh psychological conditions i really don't want to draw any other any more comparisons to that because my media of the week is the new uh nbc i think uh show hannibal oh yeah uh, uh i really want that- to watch it Hugh Dancy, Mads Mikkelsen, Lawrence Fishburne, uh, Burn, about uh, I can't I don't quite know where it fits into the timeline of Hannibal Lecter, but uh, and I'm not even sure whether the story. I think it must be, but um, pre Silence of the Lambs, I think. Oh, certainly but he is. Therese he is, very much is not... in it or is going to be in it? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I think. But they don't know he's a serial killer yet, do they? No, but I haven't. I haven't seen. Very, it. I am very much up. does. I just very have to uh, finish watching this season of Dexter, and then. So yeah, it's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. The performances are stellar. I was really concerned. So the the main character, this guy Will Graham, who is this, uh, he has a line earlier on which says he he, uh, what's the he kind of he he places himself closer on the. Uh, to autism and Asperger's than to psychopathy and sociopathy. But okay, because I'd heard he was c- canonically Asperger's, but... Possibly, but I think they're trying to com- make it pretty complex what he... And, it, you know, the whole point about him is that he has, like, un- unfiltered empathy. Right. Which is actually kind of non-spectrum, as far as... I'm apart aware. from the kind of non filtering side of it. So it's kind of related, yeah. but not just your standard, whatever. Very, standards. very, very unstandard. So the idea is that he can completely empathize with the serial killers that he's trying to find. And this scares him to death because he doesn't like doing it as you would expect. Um, so from the first episode, like the, there is a, I was a little hesitant about it from the beginning because the way that they represent this is they kind of, they do it so he can like see what's happened in a particular murder. So it will kind of, he will literally retrace the steps of the murderer with him as the murderer. Yeah. Which is started off being kind of gimmicky, but actually once, once you get used to it, it works really well. Have you seen wire in the blood, the TV version? Cause that's exactly what happens. And the hero is a um, clinical psychologist who works in a forensic setting turned forensic psychologist with dyspraxia. Um, Maybe people have drawn comparisons between me and him in the past. Um, but that is what he does, is he like envisions himself committing the crimes at the crime scenes in order to... So it's very similar to what it seems like Will Graham is doing in this yeah, show. Yeah, I think it's something that they do in a lot of shows, in a kind of along those lines. But and the way he gets into me off the it. killer's head yeah. is supposed to be But anyway, it worked well. very well. And the, obviously the main thing about it... Well, not obviously the main thing about it, the Mads Mikkelsen is someone I could happily watch in anything. And in this, he is just 
phenomenal from the first episode as Hannibal Lecter. And particularly, like, I've seen two out of the however many Hannibal Lecter films. Yeah. Uh, Silence of the Lambs and Red Dragon. Okay. And in both of those, they never, like, they show his cannibalism at times, and it's, like, messed up. But it never... They they never achieved the same level of really skin crawling creepiness that they've managed to achieve in the TV show. The way that they it, they kind of juxtapose victim and him kind of basically cooking and eating the body parts, and it's just oh, it's so powerful and so utterly utterly creepy. So uh, if you like that kind of thing, then uh, I would highly recommend this. Uh, not for the faint-hearted by any stretch of imagination. Sure. Well, I do in- fully intend to catch up as soon as I finish the current season of Dexter, which I'm actually working towards doing now. Uh, also, um, it's got Gina Torres in it, who I, is Zoe I, from Firefly. Am I right? Yep, that's I right. So. And is also apparently Lawrence Fishburne's wife. What, in real life? In real life. She's real laugh. Wife. So that's kind of pleasing, I guess. Okay, I'll I'll let you be <laughs> pleased by that. I don't know why. Anyway, um. <laughs> so I mean that's fiction. It's based on the novels by Thomas Harris. We're talking about novels this week. Um, ben, this was kind of your idea. Yeah. Why do you want to talk about novels? So um, earlier last week, I attended a series of talks in the department given by various um, kind of, uh, I think, applicants for some various positions or other. And one of the talks was given on the some work the guy had done looking at the link between empathy and novel reading. The idea being that if you read more novels, you're more empathic. And the talk was fantastic and very, very well done. And I decided that we should cover this on the podcast. Obviously, it then transpired that all the data that he presented was pre-publication and that he hasn't published anything about this up until this point. So it's kind of difficult. I, I was unable to find the stuff that I had had presented to me. But thankfully, it would appear that there is kind of a body of literature, small but significant body of literature on this in existence already. So I thought to start off with, I would like to I'd go through that because there are some really cool ideas in there. Uh, a little bit light on the funny, but hopefully heavy on the interesting. Uh, at least I thought so. So um, a good starting point for this and one that was drawn in the talk is there is apparently a currently a small but significant kerfuffle taking place uh, in the American education system over something called the Common Core State Standards Initiative which right. is this this initiative which aims to standardize the curriculum of schools across all the American states. Um, and it has been adopted by something like 43 of the states. And it's going to okay. mean, that, amongst other things, a significant reduction in the amount of fiction that children are expected to read in the classrooms uh, in order wow. to wait, make way for more nonfiction materials. Now, you can... Is there a creationism joke to be made there? <laughs> Almost certainly. Um, but, you know, I don't want to get into the educational policy debate or the politics because these things are rarely funny and only usually interesting in the kind of way that 
like the Ebola virus is interesting. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but this debate, you know, kind of depressing and upsetting and potentially detrimental to the future of civilization. But still interesting. But the debate does raise the question of why it might be important for children to exposed to be exposed to literary fiction as part of a well-rounded education system. Sure. Uh, I mean, I think all of us, you know, rational, scientifically minded, cynical empiricists would agree that it's very important for children to learn the aspects, important aspects of nonfiction, things like, you know, evidence, arguments, accurate use of footnotes and APA citations, stuff that, you know, really inspires the disaffected youth. Um, History, which countries were involved in World War Two on which sides, stuff like that. <laughs> The question is, why should kids bother learning about useful, useless frivolities like emotion, character development, narrative structure? You know, after all, no one ever made money by telling a story and no one ever ran a successful business based on an understanding of how people think. Um, well, as always, science has, if not the answer, then certainly an answer, which it will subtly infer is the answer until someone else <laughs> comes along and provides an other answer at which point both parties can engage in a protracted and highly publishable debate as to which is the best and thus the answer ah satire <laughs> still true though <laughs> still true um so one of the main researchers in this area is a guy called keith oakley uh, whose article uh, the cognitive science of fiction sets out the idea that literary fiction is a form of simulation. Uh, it's a means of exploring the behavior of objects or agents without engaging with them directly. Uh, in fact, Oakley thinks that fiction and storytelling are actually the earliest forms of mental simulation. Um, the very first means by which early humans explored the, the world around them using their shiny newly evolved imaginations. Um, to illustrate this point, he compares fiction to the way our brains simulate the physical world through vision. In the, this case, in the simulation, two-dimensional data from our retinas is interpreted and modeled as a three-dimensional image in our visual cortex. By his comparison, similarly in fiction, written or spoken words act as the kind of two-dimensional cues, which are then interpreted or modeled as scenes or narratives for us to kind of vicariously experience. I really like the idea of fiction as simulation, and it leads very neatly onto what Oakley would argue is the main psychological function of fiction, uh, which is to exercise our empathic faculties, um, and particularly the processes that psychologists call theory of mind. Um, so the idea is that a key component of any simulation is being able to get as close as possible to the experience that it's attempting to replicate. Uh, in the case of fiction, the experiences in question are interactions between characters, between people. So when we engage in a simulation, the simulation of a fictional narrative, we're being invited to kind of step into the consciousness of another being, uh, specifically yeah. the characters in the story. And we're expected Frequently to em John Malkovich. Yes, exactly. I think John Malkovich takes this a few orders of like few meta levels further than is absolutely necessary. But sure. we are. We are expected to empathize with the characters, at the very least in the sense of one of the many definitions of empathy, the idea of being able to see the world through someone else's eyes. And closely related yeah. to this is the ability theory, the theory of mind ability, which is being able to attribute psychological states to others that are different from your own, or to put it another way, to understand that other people might see the world differently to you. Now, 
the majority of the majority of people experience some level of empathy and can apply some degree of theory theory of mind ability with relatively little effort uh, it's only as actually tying back to what we were talking about before it's only in conditions like autism or psychopathy that some would argue that these faculties become significantly disrupted yeah in um, very different ways it's worth noting. very different ways yes uh, f- so for example uh, a high functioning psychopath may very be well be able to understand kind of objectively the emotional experience that someone else is having and therefore manipulate it but they won't get that kind of yeah, vicarious won't really experience care. yeah um, whereas yeah someone who is autistic might really struggle but they'll probably want to and yeah. if it was laid out in a way that they got would be able to empathize apparently. exactly this is this is the the kind of consensus view that i've come across anyway um however it it must be said that amongst the what was it uh a uh a allistic 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 or um neuro what was it neurotypical neurotypical population that some people are clearly more empathic than others you know interest individual differences and there is some evidence that empathy, like pretty much every other psychological trait, can be to some extent trained or at least temporarily manipulated by a psychologist to suit their own diabolical ends. Uh, so given that reading fiction can be seen as a kind of empathic workout, Oatley argues that people who read a lot of fiction ought to be more empathic. And so to the warm embrace of science. Uh, in correlational studies, Oakley and his colleague Marr did indeed find that people who report reading more narrative fiction tend to score higher on measures of empathy and theory of mind. So that's kind of cool. It kind of goes against the stereotype of the closeted book reader as someone who has low social skills. Although that's a massively overgeneralizing statement. Um, and obviously this kind of association between reading lots of fiction and being high on empathy could be due to any number of factors you know maybe empathic people just enjoy fiction more yeah. maybe fiction improves some other f- psychological trait which in turn then helps empathy correlation does not equal causation limitations of questionnaire studies yada 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 you know the drill we've done this all before um Myron oakley followed up their sort of basic correlational study with another uh, study where they controlled for various personality traits uh, specifically openness to experience tendency to be drawn into stories and gender. Uh, right. Sorry, I should have called those individual difference variables. Gender is not a personality trait. Or is it? Maybe. Anyway, uh, <laughs> they found that they found that being widely exposed to fiction still predicted empathy and theory of mind, even when you control for these personality variables and when you control for gender and stuff like that. Um, they also made the rather interesting discovery that uh, people with high exposure to fiction tend to also experience higher levels of social support, uh, whilst those with higher levels of exposure to non-fiction actually had lower social support and were more likely to be lonely, which is kind of weird. Uh, right. It means that the spurious joke I'll make later about people who read a lot of books being lonely is actually scientifically invalid. Hooray! I'm still going to uh, make it. Of course. 
So, uh, I mean, right there is one black mark against the Common Core State Standards Initiative. It is scientifically proven to make children more socially isolated, uh, socially isolated and lonely. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I was just going to go into a whole thing about the like, you know, the conservative language used on Twitter. Things like <laughs> no Obama. It's like, wow, wow, guys, witty stuff. You could uh, just take that too far, though. Like, I don't know, Snow Obama, Froyo Obama. Ah, oh, I'd like Froyo Obama. Christina made uh, Froyo the other night. It was peach. It's really good. I'm going to make sound nice. This week, my, my, my goal for this week is to make apple crumble uh, ice cream. Uh, what a goal to have in your life I my know, goal right. this week is like to get through work successfully right? <laughs> collapsing at the wheel and driving off the road or something you well know? yeah i mean obviously that is that is also a one of my goals but i try and focus on the ones that i actually like doing you focus on the ones that end in ice cream <laughs> yeah exactly uh so anyway back to the science uh, obviously there are still some pretty major problems here uh, you know, from those studies, Mara and Oakley haven't, to my mind, addressed the whole causality issue. Uh, yeah. And I'm also not a huge fan of their their measure of uh, exposure to fiction. Basically, they give participants a big list of authors and ask them how many they recognize, which Interesting. seems pretty spurious to me. I mean, their hypothesis... It's a great measure of people who work in Waterstones. Yeah, exactly. Their hypothesis is that theory of mind is improved by inserting oneself into a fictional character's psyche, not by knowing the names of lots of authors. You know, to use an extreme example, you can kind of imagine someone with autism who might be able to recognize a huge list of authors, but they may still struggle on theory of mind tasks. Yeah, uh, that is an extreme example, but it does demonstrate the point. I was just going to say, someone who loves quiz shows and will yeah. do anything to win, no yeah. matter what the opponent feels. <laughs> uh, anyway, thankfully, I did find one more study that addresses some of these problems um, by guys called Matthias Baal and Martin Veltkamp. Uh, they got some Dutch students to read either a short story or a section from a newspaper uh, before reporting the extent to which they felt emotionally transported into the story. So this is really good. This is them identifying a proposed mediator, to use the boring scientific language. I, they're, they're suggesting that the process by which reading improves empathy is through this being emotionally transported into the story. And then they're testing that process as well as just the kind of before and after. Uh, so they, they also assessed empathic ability directly directly before reading directly after reading and one week later as well which is another massive tick in the kind of methodology of this study that they do it kind of longitudinally oh yeah uh, they found that the experimental of manipulation of fiction versus non-fiction interacted with emotional transportation to predict levels of empathy at one week after reading so specifically uh the level of emotional transportation that a person felt predicted their subsequent level of empathy only amongst participants who read the fictional story. So okay. if you are emotionally transported by a fictional story, it will increase your empathy. If you're not, it won't. It doesn't matter how emotionally transported you are by a non-fiction story, you're not going to increase in empathy, according to this. That's really interesting, though, isn't it? If I sit down and watch a kind of panorama documentary about how terrible mm. things are in North Korea... Um, you would think the more transported I am into the world of North Korea, 
the more I would empathise with the North Korean people subsequently. Potentially. So it's an interesting result. It is. I found it... I So it seems slightly counterintuitive to me, but the, the thing that they did also note is that there were no significant differences in the levels of emotional transportation between the fiction and the non-fiction groups. Okay. Which kind of counteracts the idea that I had that maybe just newspaper articles are a bit drier. They're less kind of emotionally engaging. Or if they are emotionally engaging, not in a way that transports you into the perspective of the person being written about. Exactly. And I think that might be the answer. I think, you know, the the nature of the majority of kind of narrative fiction is that it is, it is kind of designed to draw you into the mind of the protagonist or the characters. Yeah. Whereas with something like a panorama interview, they it, I, I suspect it may increase your empathy, but it doesn't do it by transporting you to North Korea. It does it by evoking different psychological processes perhaps okay yes and that's kind of the very emotionally neutral journalism that you tend to get from the bbc whereas if you think about reading a newspaper article if you read like a mirror story or a you know sun story any kind of tabloid story there's always a certain tone that perhaps puts a level of remove between you yeah that kind of hysterical tabloid approach yeah or that there's lots of judging going on and so you're not going to empathise because you're not supposed to empathise. So even if you make an emotional connection, it's not. Anyway, it's an interesting thing. And I think they've studied it well in this study. Agreed. Um, interestingly, they actually also found that people who had very low levels of emotional transportation by the fictional text became less empathic as a result, which is kind of surprising. So maybe it's something to do, you know, the key is not just making sure that kids are reading fiction, but actually making sure that they are reading fiction that engages and interests them at an emotional level oh yeah it suggests that like bad fiction could be just as damaging as no fiction if not more so if you consider you know lower potentially very temporarily lowering empathy as a as a bad outcome well Uh, yeah but you can guess there might be longer term effects over the course of a fiction or non-fiction reading lifetime i guess yeah in fact this was actually one of the major questions that came up with the guy who gave the talk you know, a lot of the audience were asking, OK, so you've done these studies kind of correlationally. You've done them over short periods of time, you know, a week, couple of weeks. Is that can you say with any certainty that there is a link between a change that happens over the course of a few weeks and these kind of broader patterns that you see whereby people who read more fiction are more empathic? And his response was, there's no way that I can say it for certain. But the kind of the more levels of comparison you get, the the cl- closer you get to being able to say that this is kind of the causal link yeah uh so anyway i thought that was kind of cool um i don't know why whether you think what you think about that as someone who reads way more fiction than i do well you know i'm certainly not a person who is borderline psychopath and just manipulates people's own end of course not only cares (laughs) about himself no i (laughs) I'm reading a book at the the, the minute, uh, which will feature perhaps heavily in part of my psychology. Um, I'm reading the Hunger Games trilogy. Oh, OK. And the extent to which I connect with the characters in it is immense. And I'm sitting there going, I hope that every like young person reading this is loving this book because I think it says such a lot about um, today's society and that I can picture all of these kids just being really inspired by it to go and change the world. But will they get it? Because I'm sitting here on my smug, ah, oh, role science fiction is actually about the present high horse. Mm. Um, it's like, this is a perfect demonstration of the divide and conquer approach of the bourgeoisie. Marx was right. 
which well, I, think... I don't think is me printing it on it. I think that's what it's about. Oh, sure. And I'm sure that the author's intention was the same, but I don't think they ne- like the intention necessarily has to be that all of the you know young audience reading that book appreciates it at that kind of cerebral level. I think yeah. probably as far as the author is concerned, if she plants the seed of some kind of understanding or about, the spark, if you will, to use an overarching metaphor from the series. Yeah, then that is then that is enough, you know. And yeah, I think I really do empathize with a lot of characters, but I'm especially noticing it in this book because I don't think the characters are especially similar to me because they are from this incredibly tough working class slash kind of just survival list sort of background in a society that in a way is similar to our own but obviously in a way is extraordinarily different whereas a lot of the books i read where i feel like oh yeah i'm really getting this character it's because of their similarities to me mm. um see like i think Dexter. that's but really, i think that's really interesting because i don't think i i barely ever get that sensation of deep empathy and kind of emotional transportation into the mind of characters in novels or books or films or tv or anything okay Hardly i was gonna say all. does it go across because i no. think but i'm always I, projecting myself into characters in books yeah. and other media i don't think i do that hardly at all and yet i consider myself a very empathic person in other domains and i know that you in some areas of kind of empathy and emotional understanding have said in the past that you find it you know slightly more difficult yeah some things i do find difficult some things i find very easy mm. but like you know in terms of interpreting others emotions from signals i do find that difficult it's one of the ways that i clearly do tend towards the one end of the spectrum um, so i i was quite interested then, in this and i wanted to i wanted to find out because i think it's a potential limitation of these studies as they're homogenizing this construct of empathy oh sure so I actually took, you can take the test that they used in the study and I will put the link to it in the show notes. It's okay. a particular empathy Another scale. empathy test, because obviously I put in the Baron Cohen one yeah. last week. <laughs> so we're doing well for that. So um, it's, it gives you, it, I was pleased to see that it actually has four subcomponents. Of, oh, that's good. So the first is fantasy. And this is, this is questions like, do you find yourself transported to worlds when you read fancy novels yeah um then there's perspective taking which is you know can you see things from the other person's point of view as you'd expect there's empathic concern which is you know do you feel do you do you worry when others are upset kind of thing yeah so i think that's one i score quite highly on if i know someone is upset that does get to me a lot and i feel a lot of their pain and then finally is personal distress which is kind of like how well do you deal with emergencies basically right and so I got an overall score of 78 out of 112 on this, which uh, and they helpfully give the male and female averages. So the male average is 61 and the female average is 70. So slightly above average empathy for me. Yeah. But then on, the, you know, the fantasy subscale, I got 13. The male average is 15 and the female average is 18. So that yeah. is very consistent. And then perspective taking, I got 27 where the male average is 16 and the female average is 18. So, like, it is showing... One could that... predict, right, that then if we did this thing with the fiction and the non-fiction, you would show empathy towards the non-fictional person. Potentially, maybe. those subscales, perhaps. That would be really cool if they, if they found that on those two subscales, fantasy predicts it for fiction and perspective-taking or maybe empathic concern predicts it for non-fiction. Uh, 
so anyway i thought that was really cool i also the one thing that struck me about this was this idea about maybe more empathic people seek out kind of fiction and empathy inducing media and i think again you have to draw this distinction because i really don't like things that make me feel emotions (laughs) right interesting i i hate being forced to kind of yeah i i I always feel like i don't want to get too emotionally invested in a character because if i do start to empathize with them and bad things happen it will just be unbearable for me like that's very interesting this is things like why i don't watch war i will will not watch warhorse because the level i mean that is just spielberg like injecting and placing an electrode on your amygdala and just tweaking it yeah Um, sure and so I, I think I actively avoid things that I know will be highly emotive. And okay, well, of, what about music and, then? Because basically my main qualification for music that I like is music that moves me emotionally. And so I'll listen to pretty much any genre provided it moves me, um, which means that I do listen to some stuff that is a bit cliche and I don't feel too much shame about it because it still I, moves me. I think that it depends what you consider an emotion like. I mean... I listen to a lot of high arousal music. That's what I was thinking. Exhilaration. If we cut out exhilaration. Yeah, sure. Rousing. Exhilaration. I love music that kind of gets the blood up in various forms, but I wouldn't say it was uh, in any sense kind of engaging my empathic faculties. And Whereas I don't... the song makes me feel sad, I like it because it makes me feel sad. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure that's the case. I mean... There, there are a small number. So a good example is like um, Adam's song by Blink-182, which I find almost unbearably sad to listen to. I mean, it's it's kind of a cheesy song and unsettled, but it like it sticks a knife in my heart and twists. Yeah. And so I will only listen to that song if I am feeling sad. Yeah. When you're already in a mood congruent state, which is interestingly something that comes up later as a personality variable in terms of the kind of media you prefer. Basically, yeah. if you are a ruminator, you tend to listen to mood congruent music when you're sad. And if you're a right. non-ruminator, you tend to listen to mood incongruent music to make you feel better. Okay. Uh, anyway, really interesting subject. I think. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, shall we continue and take it off in a completely different, but I think still interesting direction? Go for it. So I'm uh, deeply, deeply frightened. You should be. Uh, Salmon <laughs> and Simons next, or should I say Salmon slash Simons, because they want to discuss something very important. And it is something relevant to us here on the podcast. Ever since our, listener, ever since it... our listener Amanda wrote, let's do a TFT psychomedia mashup and write slash fic to go with it. I vote for Ben slash Seeley and Tim slash Matt. Um, that's right. Someone out there in the world of the psychological literature has written about the psychology of slash fiction so step one define your terms um <laughs> i find the phrase define your terms funny because it is a running joke in uh start of a 10 and i'd like to say david nichols author of start of a 10 very nice very humble man met him at uh, corpus christi they got him in to speak and he's really good and you should read his books or at least you should read his comedy books one day eh. but you know anyway here's what s slash s as I will refer to them throughout, say, (laughs) even though it is incorrect by their definition, because one is a man and one is a woman. Slash fiction, or slash, is a kind of romantic fiction 
usually but not always very sexually graphic in which both of the lovers are male to be considered true slash the lovers must be an expropriated media pairing now expropriated by the way i like that which i, I had like to look up. that level of technical detail Yes, which is not without controversy. Um, but anyway, expropriated is when characters pass from outside of the hands of their creators into the popular culture. So Superman is expropriated. Superboy, not really. Luke Skywalker, expropriated. Ben Skywalker, isn't. Timothy Swan, expropriated. Ben Fell, isn't. Uh, <laughs> of course not. We're both expropriated. Otherwise, Amanda Slash would be illegitimate and not true Slash. Her entirely theoretical I hope Slash. <laughs> And by, yeah. I hope, I mean, well, I a very good looking guy. Anyway, <laughs> um, so key points made by S slash S about slash fiction. One, started in the 1970s. Two, almost entirely by and for women. Three, was originally shared in zines, but it's now shared on the internet. Uh, four, it seems to have arisen spontaneously at about the same time in the US, the UK, Germany, Australia and Canada. I find that spontaneous convergent evolution quite interesting. I find it deeply sinister. I think there must be some sort of Lovecraftian elder god that's arising from the deep at a certain point that has caused this terrible, terrible blight upon civilization. Interesting. I kid. I think slash fiction is amazing. Um, so many of the most frequently slash TV shows are British. Uh, and this was before Sherlock came out. Um, this article <laughs> is from 2004. Obviously, we would have to do a quantitative study on fanfiction.net to ascertain whether this is still true. Maybe just all British things are just instinctively more homoerotic. I think that that is probably it. Like, perhaps in American shows up until that point, the sexuality was somewhat more worn on its sleeve. So it left a lot of the, you know, it left a lot of the mystery out. Oh, that's interesting. You say they're more sexual. I was going to say that we're more repressed and more homophobic. No, I mean, uh, the American shows are, are more openly sexual, whereas the British shows, it's the, you know, the, the kind of repressed sexuality type That's thing. interesting, because, you know. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I really have no basis of measurement for this and no evidence for it. But as you see, I think that would be an explanation. The dominance of network television. I don't know. It's an interesting thing that's not really relevant to this. Anyway, this is going to be one of those slightly obnoxious bits of psychomedia where there is a fair amount of quotation. But some of the stuff in this is too good to be paraphrased so when most people including the second author of this article first learn of the existence of slash they are deeply puzzled in other words <laughs> Catherine salmon the female first author understood it intuitively from the beginning <laughs> these two authors began collaborating in 1994 10 years before this article in an attempt to achieve the joint goal of explaining the psychology of slash and thereby uncovering something new about female sexuality now they wanted to do this using slash as an unobtrusive measure what i would call secret science a research <laughs> method that does not require the cooperation of its participants mm. um, so salmon and simons had already done this in studying erotica and they believed that slash was popular because people derived pleasure from reading or writing it and since these people were from across the world it had something to tell us that was generalizable but before they can theorise about Slash, they need to cover fiction. So, uh, <laughs> famed evolutionary psychologists, and thus experts in writing fiction, oh, I guess, I guess, <laughs> these guys do have a lot of very Zing. imaginative ideas, um, <laughs> Tubi and Cosmides, kind of the kings or queens of uh, evolutionary psychology, um, found that fiction is universal to humans. 
Now, obviously, from the evolutionary point of view, there's two reasons for universal behavior, the accidental hangover or the adaptive ability. So Steven Pinker, a popular science writer, suggests that fiction and the arts happen to stimulate our pleasure circuits effectively, just like drugs. The circuits aren't designed to be stimulated by designed. You know what I mean? It's still just the best word to use in this situation. Um, the they aren't meant to be stimulated by drugs, but drugs stimulate them really well. And Pinker reckons that fiction is a similar principle. Whereas Tubi and Cosmetas have the opposite view. Art is adaptive. And they use the example of monkeys play fighting and fighting. It's both adaptive behaviour, even if one is more obviously adaptive. Fiction enhances foresight, empathy, as we've discussed, and planning. I mean, how many woolly mammoths have you brought down, Ben, because you followed the obvious plot tropes that they were going to follow and you've been able to guess exactly what they do? <laughs> so too, uh, too many to count, really. Exactly. S Slashers helpfully point out that we live in a very different place from the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness or EEA, the EEC, for example. Um, an important difference is that our modes of sharing fiction are very different from Pleistocene oral histories. For example, the Plasticine episode of Community. <laughs> this Obvious, may be my but... favourite joke about evolutionary psychology. Yet. <laughs> so, yeah, we've got TV, the Internet, books, photos. Those are all evolutionary novel. No, not novel. They're new to the system, adapted to the EEA. Um, right. As in EEA sports. It's in the brain. Um, anyway, they said suggest... microtransactions, Tim. <laughs> well, you know, what is evolution but a stage of continual expensive dlc <laughs> that is that is a gravestone quote that's amazing uh, anyway i'm gonna so, write that down <laughs> um so yeah they suggest that written fiction at least must fulfill both of these agendas that they pleasurably stimulate circuits that function for other things but also they stimulate circuits in ways that are adaptive and S slash S genuinely suggest that the difference between a classic and a fun read is the proportion to which it's actually adaptive to read rather than just pleasurable. And this may explain the classic status of Catcher in the Rye, because it certainly isn't pleasurable to read. Mm -hmm. um, they suggest that in the category of reads that are just epiphenomenally pleasurable, uh, that's romance novels, amongst other things. I'm sure they chuck in a lot of kind of genre fiction, space opera and all sorts in there. Uh, anyway. They then have an interesting passage discussing whether pornography counts as fiction. They suggest that it falls into the category of, like Stephen Pinker's drugs, uh, not like that, you know, drugs as in the metaphor. No, he does. He's not on drugs, as far <laughs> as I know. Anyway, it, pornography teaches nothing adaptive, but it happens to stimulate pre-existing circuits. And that's easy to believe. They note, however, that we've still learned things about male sexuality from studying it systematically. I bet they have. I bet they've studied it very systematically. Anyway, they contend that romance novels are a female analogy in that they are purely, pre Take purely pleasurable and not adaptive. Uh, <laughs> focus on wish fulfillment rather than verisimilitude and yet can still teach us psychologically. I'll jump in on a quotation. Because genre romances have been shaped in free markets by the cumulative choices of tens or hundreds of millions of women to effectively pick the locks of the pleasure circuit of women's brains, as it were, <laughs> uh, they have great potential to illuminate female mating psychology. You could literally have that music on loop for the whole of this study. <laughs> 
female mating psychology. Oh, yeah. Uh, the end result is constrained. It is narrow. It does not include... <laughs> the examples in the paper. <laughs> Hush your noise, because it's only going to get worse. Uh, things that female romance uh, fiction does not include after its evolution via hundreds of millions of women in the free market, apparently, does not include sex with trees, Ben. Does not include sex with ferrets. Does not include sex with isosceles triangles. Which, to uh, just note... Tim, rule 34. (laughs) Exactly. They've not heard of object sexuality or weird self-identifications or anything. It does not include random and purely sexual accounts. Also, ferrets. Furries. Look, this was 2004, Ben. They were very naive. This is by far and away not the most wrong thing they say. It does not include (laughs) sex as part of a long-term relationship. It does not include narratives in which heroines meet, win the hearts of an ultimately married, gentle, sensitive, mild-mannered, hard-working, non-threatening heroes with slightly feminine facial features who are anxious to shoulder half the housework and childcare. Nor does it feature <laughs> narratives in which heroines marry such men as described above and then have impersonal short-term extramarital things during ovulation with Mr. Goodjean's macho studs. Is this still quoting? Uh, the last two were quotes, yes. That's amazing. But they That's genuinely absolutely brilliant. the trees, ferrets, isosceles, triangles example. I did not make those up. I wish I had the imagination to make those up, but I did not. <laughs> Man, that is a wild party. <laughs> uh, yes. So uh, they claim that none of these genres exist, which may be a time thing, because there's a lot of different stuff out there now. Just go and look at Archive of Our Own or something. Um, so they claim the absence of these genres is the curious dog in the night time, or something like that. An absence that is a clue to something that does exist. The romance story has to have obstacles to overcome to reach the goal of marriage and sex is part of achieving that goal as a form of control that is what they say not me them i distance myself from these views romantic heroes share qualities according to the anthropological work of gory uh, who studied 45 romance novels heroes gory writes were uniformly described as tall uh, in the novels where height was stated exactly the heroes were six foot six two and in one case six three in addition wow. to height, the adjectives most frequently used to describe the hero's physical appearance were muscular, handsome, strong, large, tanned, masculine, and energetic. Not one of these traits was explicitly mentioned in every novel, but no hero was described as lacking any of them. Regarding physical and social competence, heroes were described as sexually bold. Uh, not like that. Um, calm, confident, <laughs> intelligent. No hero was described as lacking any of these traits, and no hero... That joke only works in the North. um no hero was described as being a gentle sensitive fellow except with respect to his feelings for or actions towards the heroine now as a man who is not tall not muscular not handsome not strong not large very pale often called androgynous although i still don't know why lethargic sexually well i don't even know what word to use there (laughs) neurotic falsely confident and thus insecure and intelligent but not in the way people like and yes a gentlist Mm -hmm. sensitive on occasion folks but Rarely with respect. Very introspective, though. Uh, indeed, with a uh, tendency to make unpleasant jokes towards heroines, even though I really don't want to. Um, <laughs> I just want to write a novel with a romantic hero who's like me. Not to valorise myself, just to annoy people like Gory, <laughs> the guys who are writing this article. But I assume what you want to write is a, su- a successful romantic novel. <laughs> Have you read any of my prose fiction? Successful is never the aim. <laughs> it's the delusion. <laughs> okay. It's never the niche, aim. then. <laughs> So, yeah, emotionally, the hero must find the woman unique and uniquely desirable to the point of sexual jealousy. He has intrusive thoughts, their words, about the heroine. Not like that. Um, The way he (laughs) 
put it in this article does not make it sound that attractive. I know that romantic love and obsessive compulsive disorder are linked, but still. Similarly, the heroes are frequently rich or otherwise capable in a way that would apparently also be the case in the EEA. I guess these guys are probably writing a paper right now about how Christian Grey would prosper in the Paleolithic. Well, Absolutely. his attitudes concerning violence towards and control of women clearly belong there. Boom! <laughs> Fifty Shades of Abuse on yeah. Um, so, finally, we get to Slash Fiction. Some have obviously argued that Slash is a paraphilia, but that really only applies to Guns N' Roses erotica. It is all about <laughs> Axel, obviously, for normal heterosexual women. So, uh, no, 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 it's Come not. on, you knew there was going to be a Guns N' Roses... I know. I, I just, I just, I just uh, object to. He was a wife beater. Let's not go there. Okay, well, we're back to Christian Grey. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, step one, they got some romance novel readers to try something new. Yep, some empirical study coming in here. A male male romance, not slash, but a romantic novel. And they found that the readers enjoyed it just as much as the heterosexual or heteroromantic romances they normally read, which they hmm. argue suggests that interest in a romantic novel that is male male is not a quirk of slash fans some kind of fetish obviously certain factors correlated with enjoyment homophobia correlated negatively <laughs> being considered a tomboy as a youth correlated positively greater enjoyment of buddy action sci-fi and horror movies all often considered male genres positively interest in that oh, relationship positively to quote Slash is more similar to mainstream romance novels than most academic students of Slash have realised. And then cites Fraser Lamb and Vyth, Jenkins, Penley and Russ, who have all academically studied Slash and also come away with the conclusion that it is a fetish, it would seem. So hmm. they suggested that Slash... But what is a fetish? It's just something that not many people do. I suppose. I don't know whether that's the technical definition. I don't know what that is. We'll have to look it up, maybe. Anyway, Slash is a story. Episode title right there. <laughs> uh, Slash is a story where two male partners come to realise that they love each other despite their previous apparent heterosexuality, then have sex, but it is clearly monogamous sex. This is not so dissimilar from romance novels, they argue. Similarly, there are gradations in explicitness, just as there are in romance novels. The sex is plot subservient and emotional rather than just sexual. They, and I once again stress the they in this bit, state that one character is always feminised and that the sex is not homosexual so much as heterosexual played out by supposedly male bodies. And I do not want to elaborate on that. The article does. Um, <laughs> they show the sex sexual exclusivity and sexual jealousy of romance novels. So they go on to ask the question, then why does Slash exist? If it's just almost identical to romance novels, I can't put into my own words the next bit, principally because I don't want to. First, <laughs> although the heroes of mainstream romance novels are warriors, the heroines are not warriors. No matter how intelligent, well-educated, fiercely independent, professionally successful and spunky they may be. In Slash, however, both lovers are warriors. Slash is based on shared adventure and its protagonists slay each other's dragons. Not that. Um, so I'm not sure. Well, <laughs> probably they... like that. I'm not sure how. Well, most certainly dragons. like that. In fact, <laughs> I think they are quite literal. You know, they're also a metaphor for Sith lords, serial killers, and other genre fiction villains. Anyway, they point out that some otherwise normal heterosexual women's 
would rather be co-warriors than Mrs. Warriors. The shocking notion unthinkable to evolutionary psychologists. <laughs> they want to triumph over the forces of evil rather than over an alpha male using sexual wiles. And this attitude is why basically all Slash fans, they say, are tomboys. They embrace traditionally male things. Male things like camaraderie, adventure, risk-taking, capability, agency, ability, intelligence. Oh, I've added Jesus. some of those things. But camaraderie, adventure, and risk-taking. They do not reject traditionally female things like romance. That's genuinely their theory. Additionally, apparently solves some of the problems of romantic fiction. In romantic fiction, we have seen the bond between the characters forged, but men are always sexually fickle forever and can never successfully commit. Whereas, although it is a suspension of disbelief to believe that two sexual, heterosexual men could fall for each other, their bond has been forged through adventure and shown to be strong before the romance kicks in. On the other hand, no male-female friendship ever exists without sexual tension. So shipping Mulder and Scully will definitely never be a thing. Again, literally what they say. Their bond can't be really fireforged because Mulder always wants to sleep with Scully and then never call her again. Now, don't worry, guys. Lots of people have talked about the sexism and heteronormativity found in evolutionary psychology. It's just interesting to see it crop up in this article trying to address slash fiction. So it's kind of a, it's an interesting one, though, isn't it? Because like. What they really should be doing is having a massive disclaimer paragraph at the top of their article saying the generalities that we will apply in this uh, article relate to perceptions of society as it exists now and do not reflect our opinions on how it should be. But because that's kind of what they're, what they're trying to convey is that that is gen like generalities about how society works, you know. But I don't think anyone who says we want it to be different would focus in on the tomboy aspect. Yeah, I think, there, yes, obviously there are more and less. Sure. Kind of. But yes, some things are descriptive. It's like the stuff on humour where it's like yeah. women tend to laugh more at men because it's evolutionary biased. But that doesn't mean women shouldn't be funny. It's a problem. in. So anyway, I don't know. So thinking of heteronormativity, what about female female pairings? Now, they point out that the fact that male-male pornography reflects heterosexual pornography means that the findings speak to male sexuality rather than heterosexual sexuality or gender attitudes in men. Well, some lesbian writers write slash about Xena, so it must be the same. Forget that Xena actually contains episodes when Xena and Gabrielle are married. You know, it actually <laughs> has homosexual relationships within the plot of the show. They got the slash fiction into the show. Well, actually, no, it wouldn't be slash, would it? What's the term? Uh, I don't know. I would call it slash, but... That's because okay. I believe slash fiction just refers to any sexually explicit pairing. But mm. that's a definition. I there was a specific term, but yeah, there anyway. may well be. I just don't know it because I'm not really an expert on it because I love canon too much. <laughs> um, oh, they love canon too, Tim. Oh, so that's the end <laughs> of the article. Yeah, I feel, I feel quite bad about that. But then there's a coda, a really odd <laughs> coda. Without question, they write, there are now and always have been happy marriages. <laughs> that said, we recommend the following article. Wow, they're distancing themselves from other evolutionary psychologists <laughs> with that bold statement. Yeah, the following armchair experiment in unobtrusive measurement. Open any book of quotations and read the entries on marriage. This article's epigraph is a typical, relatively mild example. After reading a few dozen quotations on this topic, you may conclude that the core fantasy that animates slash fiction, erecting a marriage on the foundation of an established, trusted and tested friendship might not be such a bad idea. 
So, Ben, what do you reckon? I thought that was a cool article. I like no, I mean idea. about marrying based on an established, trusted and tested friendship. Are you proposing? <laughs> uh, what I think I'm not proposing, I think that the male author of this article is proposing. I think Simon <laughs> is proposing to Salmon. I think that's what's <laughs> happened here. Well, that we've is done a research re- together for 10 years. And, you know, that we've a- just seen that real relationships that last are based on friendships, right? That is that is a very elaborate, uh, <laughs> elaborate proposal. Excellent. So, he, yes. Um, Good study. So the conclusions <laughs> we can draw for this episode that we're doing. Uh, <laughs> Cut back in. fiction. Something so, about it. Uh-huh. Maybe it's really sexist. Maybe it's not got any homosexual content at all. Maybe it only happens where there's sexual tension that could never normally be resolved. So I guess we're safe, Ben. Um, maybe Xena isn't a thing. Yeah. Um, and novels make you empathetic, I guess. But maybe, yeah. you know, dependent on personality or something. Yeah, or some rubbish like that. Yeah, Ooh. seems reasonable. <laughs> well, if you want to submit your slash fiction to us, Psychology like many ways to, uh, to contact the show, uh, principally the WordPress page, psychomedia.wordpress.com. Um, that's you a good place. You can leave comments. You can comment notes. on comments. You can comment on comments on comments. And you can look at pictures and videos and stuff. Uh, you can email us, uh, psychomediapodcast at gmail.com to join the many spam bots. Uh, you can Early go gambling. facebook.com slash psychomedia um, where there are, I, I say there are bonus bits. There aren't any more. Well, there are sometimes if, if stuff yeah, occurs. And stuff problem is interesting. Often if we see an interesting study, we'll save it because we want to use it on the show. Well, that's but, uh, true. That is true. Um, uh, anyway, you can also tweet at us on Twitter at team at, at team psychomedia or at at tetrarchangel if you want to badger Tim specifically or Tim a badger specifically. Uh, if you mention psychomedia, I will probably find you just in general on the Internet, you know, um, <laughs> just in general. <laughs> yeah, probably. I'm always listening. Um, and until next week, um, National Psychomedia slash Fiction Novel Writing Month starts now. It's <laughs> uh, to see your submissions uh, in about a month's time. <laughs> I will be away. <laughs> and we will see you next week. Bye for now. Bye. Unstoppable yaks Fighting jewels between Buckley and Squire Never stopping though the straits may be dire Oh, psychomedia Guess could say Freud better Spin, spin, spin in his grave Oh, psychomedia
Psychomedia. Qu'est-ce que c'est?